Hearing the word church might stimulate a thought of a building on a corner or a building maybe out in a rural area or maybe a place of memorable things happening to you, maybe even in your childhood. What does the word church really mean? Get your Bibles and let's look at it. Spirit is active in the world. He is convicting the world of the truths about Jesus Christ. He is convicting the world of truth about sin and the truth about righteousness and the truth about God's judgment. The Holy Spirit is active in a believer. He is God's agent in activating salvation. Uh, he convicts and calls us to Christ and he brings about the miracle of being born again in the life of every believer. He indwells every believer. He seals every believer. He marks us as his own authentic possession. He also is our pledge, God's earnest payment or down payment that assures our inheritance for all that is to come for believers. But what is the Holy Spirit's work in the church? Well, the Holy Spirit's work in the church is an extension and expansion of the Holy Spirit's work in believers. Um, when we speak of church, we are uh, talking about people. We're not talking about the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Catholics and the Lutherans or uh, so forth. When we speak of church, we're referring to the whole body of believers, believers everywhere in the world. So our word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And that means a, to be called out of or to be called together like a gathering, a grouping. But the church is not a building, it is people. And it has two applications. It can be the whole com company of the redeemed throughout the world for all ages. Or it can be the body of Christ in small groups. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church. Well, when he said that, he's talking about that whole worldwide body of believers. But sometimes it can refer to a smaller group a group of believers, but either way, the word church refers to people, not building. We call buildings churches, that's okay, but understand the true meaning of a church is people, believers, those who are called out. So people from every nation have been purchased with the blood of Christ. They're out there everywhere. And so now they have to be called and brought together and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, every person who has repented of his or her sin and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a member of the body called the church. And it is a living body with Jesus Christ as its head. Everybody has to have a head. If it doesn't, the body can't function. So Jesus Christ is the head of this living body that we call the church, that the Bible calls the church. The church is not just 
a religious organization. It's not just a denomination. It is a living organism, and it is alive with the life of Christ by way of the Holy Spirit living in each and every believer. So the church is a body of believers who have been called, they have been justified or declared not guilty, sanctified, which means set apart unto holiness, and we are constantly, have been, will continue to be kept by God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who keep us once we've been born into the family of God, into the church. We can get some understanding of the church as the body of Christ by looking at metaphors that are used in the Bible for church. Uh, they're in the New Testament, but they have their basis in the Old Testament. But think about it. The church is referred to as a bride. It's referred to as a vineyard, as a flock, as a kingdom. A kingdom is a dominion where somebody rules and Jesus Christ is the king over the kingdom that is called the church. We have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's called a family. That is children of God and siblings of Christ. Christ is our brother. And so the family is adopted into the family. The believers are adopted into the family of God. Sometimes it's referred to as a building, but it's a building not made with hands. It's not a tangible building. It's Jesus Christ with the foundation and it's a spiritual building. It's also referred to as a body or the body of Christ. So the church is a called out group of people that are unified, that are one. Now the biblical record of the birth of the church is in Acts chapter two. And it was the day of the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost that the church was born. On that day, there was phenomena that God designed to inaugurate the birth of the church. Scripture is the lens through which we see the birth of the church. That day and time when the fulfillment of God, Jesus having come and died and risen from the dead, now the next big thing is that the church is going to be born. And so in this great event that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is sent to bring believers together and to establish the church in which Christ will take up residence. Christ takes up residence in the church by way of the Holy Spirit. And so it was the beginning of the church age. We are a part of that history. This is our history if we are believers. So it was a whole new thing in God's timetable, whole new dispensation, whole new ideas and attitudes. So these earliest Christians had a lot to learn. They had a lot that they needed to figure out that God would reveal to them as time went on. So let's go back and remember something that we've talked about before because it's such a great picture for what's going on at the birth of the church. To the Jews, Pentecost was the name of one of their feasts. And it was a feast that was 50 days after Passover. That's where you get the Pentecost, meaning 50. 
Well, the key Old Testament feasts are pictures of the work of Christ. Passover was a picture of the death of Christ as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world where he fulfilled the picture of the Passover lamb. And then the second feast was called the Feast of First Fruits. And worshipers would wave sheaves of grain to the, of the very, very first fruits of the harvest. Jesus rose from the dead on the day of, feast of, first, of the Feast of First Fruits. And so he was the first fruit of all other believers who will rise since that time. Then at Pentecost, they would wave not sheaves of grain, not stalks of grain, but they were made, they made loaves out of that grain. And they would take these loaves and this, this, it was made from grain that was harvested at different times during the 50 days. So you had the very earliest grain, you had some in between, and then you had some more grain. It was not the final harvest uh, that the loaves were made from, but they would make this loaf and they would hold it before the Lord. And this loaf was a union of ingredients. Did you ever make bread? You've got some yeast and you've got some flour and you've got some milk or liquid. And so all of that comes together. Well, once you bake it into a loaf, you can't take it back apart to become those things again. It is permanently united. It is permanently sealed. And so they would take this loaf and hold it up to heaven, hold it up to the Lord as an expression of thanks. Now note that at Passover, when they made bread, they made unleavened bread. Unleavened bread because Passover symbolized Christ. Leaven is a symbol of sin. And unleavened bread symbolized at Passover the sinlessness of Christ. But here when we get to Pentecost, they offered leavened bread to symbolize the fact that there's sin in the church. And so even at Pentecost with those loaves of bread, it was acknowledged that the sin, there would be sin in the church, Christ would deal with it. So we are far, far, far from being sinless like Christ was sinless. So this day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two is this huge event that launches the church that takes all of these separate parts, all of these separate believers and puts them in one body. And that body will, is an eternal body. It is something that will continue. It is perpetual. So the Holy Spirit who had been with them now after Pentecost, the, the, the miracle at Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit would take up residence in them. And he would be in them, but also he would be outside them, immersing them in, his, in, him, in himself. So they're immersed in the Holy Spirit, placed in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was placed in them all at the same time. So what that made them one with Christ and one with each other. It made them a loaf, a unified body. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look here for just a moment. In verse 11 in chapter 12, he begins with, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one 
and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Look at verse 13. For by one Spirit we were, one time, past tense, all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so what he's talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The placing where the Holy Spirit, where God places believers into the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is placing believers into the body of Christ. So you came into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. You came into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation by being placed there by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. It's the miracle of regeneration. And not only were you placed there, but verse 13 says, you also have the same indwelling spirit. So you were placed in the body. The Holy Spirit was placed in you. And when he says here, we've all been made to drink of one spirit, he's talking of that word means assimilate. And so it means we take in one spirit. We become assimilated with him. He becomes part of us, part of who we are. So we were placed in the body, in the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit was placed in us, in believers, at the same time. It is a simultaneous thing. It is a miracle. It is part of being born again. So the basis of our unity is the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul, just go ahead and turn since you're close by, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 to get the context. I therefore, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to love one another, in love, forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul's talking here about the unity of the Spirit. Look at the unity of the ingredients in a loaf of bread. So we have one Spirit. There is one Holy Spirit, and He is the same in me as He is in you. We received Him the same way. We received Him by faith in Christ. There is no other way to get into the body of Christ. That's it. The Holy Spirit. And so we all come one way, by one Savior, through one Spirit, by one salvation, so there is unity. Look on down there in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 4. He says, there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
for one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there is unity and our unity is the Holy Spirit. He is what makes us one. He is what we hold in common. So remember the metaphors that we looked at just a few minutes ago. Church refers to the church, I'm sorry, the Bible refers to the church as a wife, the bride of Christ. So the church is one wife with one husband who is Christ. Um, refers to the church sometimes as a flock. So we are one flock with one shepherd. There is one vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine, but there are the branches. So there's one set of branches for one vine. Uh, there is one kingdom with one king. There's one family with one father. There is one building with one foundation and there's one body with one head. So we see the unity of the church in these metaphors over and over again. So we are called apart from the world. Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. We're called apart from worldliness to exist as a separate entity in the world. And so we are separated to exist for Christ. We are separated to show Christ to the world. How do we do that? By the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that the Holy Spirit is just like Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, that is the form of Christ coming to indwell us. And so now the purpose of the church is to show the world what Christ is like that we collectively show Christ to the world. So the first aspect of the body is unity. It's unity. The second aspect of the body is diversity. Diversity, one body, many members. We operate in diversity. Our own physical bodies are a great expression of that. We've got arms and fingers and eyes and ears. They all do different things. But I wanna tell you something. My right hand never resents my left hand. My left eye never resents my right eye. Why? Because they complement each other. They work together. And so we've been given in the church different gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the amount of faith needed to use those gifts is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so there are diversities. There are all kinds of gifts, but they all come from the same spirit. All our different body parts do different things, but it's very difficult for one body part to operate without the other body part. So we are complements, just like my left hand is a complement of my right hand, or my right ear is a complement of my left ear, or my liver is a complement of my digestive system, or my lungs are a complement that make my heart work. Just, the, just those ways we complement, our body parts complement each other. We in the body of Christ are complements of each other. Complements of each other. So we can minister to each other. We are created with beautiful balance. A completely balanced body. So the first aspect is unity. The second aspect is diversity. The third one is harmony. Harmony. The basis of harmony 
is humility. Having the mind of Christ, that mind of Christ that made himself step out of heaven and onto earth to give us what we need, which was salvation. So when there is, is going to be harmony, there's going to have to be some humility. My right hand is going to have to say to my left hand, I need you. I appreciate you. I support you. I'll help you. We'll, we'll be a team. We'll work together. So think, if you will, of a symphony. Maybe you've been to a symphony concert or a high school band concert. And that is a great picture of unity, diversity, and harmony. And harmony from each instrument happens how? By playing under the direction of one director. So, so here's what happens. Maybe you can um, think of going to a symphony and you know that when you first step in there and everybody's coming in and the orchestra's on stage and, and they're all playing their little instruments, uh, just running through uh, notes or maybe running through a scale or loosening their fingers or whatever they need to be doing, reviewing the music, and they're all playing something different on a different page and it's just nothing. I mean, you wouldn't pay to hear that. But then there comes that moment in time when the conductor steps up on the platform, lifts his baton, all eyes are on the conductor, and then what happens? The symphony is all playing together on the same page. The clarinet doesn't sound like the flute, the trumpet doesn't sound like the violin, but when they all come together in their diversities to be on the same page, playing for the same conductor, you've got beautiful, beautiful music. So think of that. Unity, when a symphony is all in one place, bringing the instruments that they have. Diversity, because all of the instruments are so different. They sound different. But the harmony happens when each instrument plays under the direction of the director at the right rhythm, at the right tempo, on the right page, all doing their thing at the same time. So you can see what happens, you know, when some believers decide not to do that. You know, maybe one night at a uh, concert, maybe the trumpets would just decide not show up. Well, it's going to be affected, isn't it? The presentation of the symphony is going to be um, messed up. They're not going to hear, the audience is not going to hear what the symphony would really sound like. Or let's say that the violins and the clarinets just decide, well, uh -uh, we're not doing that. Or suppose they decide, we're going to play on this page. We're going to play on this page instead of the page that the conductor has pointed us to. So what you got? You got a mess. That's what happens in the body of Christ. You can see what happens when some believers just decide to be inactive just decide not to show, or when there are believers who quench the Spirit, they don't want to do it the way the conductor, the Holy Spirit conductor is telling us to do it, or when they grieve the Spirit. And so what have we got? We've got a body of believers not presenting the truth about Christ to the world because the world is supposed to be able to look at the body of Christ and see what Christ is like. We're the only body Christ has on the earth at this time. And so when we 
are inactive, when we choose to go our own way, when we choose sin, we're sending messages to the world that are not like Christ, and that is sin. When we show the world that Christ is something that he's not. So we have to deal with it. So we also have a problem when some believers don't accept other believers. You know, if a clarinet says, mm, I don't like those flutes, and there's tension between the clarinets and the flutes. There's tension in the body of Christ when we don't just accept other believers. Our unity is the unity of the Spirit. It is not the unity of a denomination. It is not the unity of an organization. That's why John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, let them be one. He's praying to the Father. Let them be one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you have sent me. By this shall men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we are the flock for whom Jesus is the good shepherd. We're it. And so we are blended together as the body of Christ. We're the loaf that is in the world at this time, t showing the world what Christ is like, telling the world the truth about Christ. Jesus said, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents. So the, he said, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. It's going to persecute you. It's going to kill you because the world hated Jesus. And guess what? When Jesus is in us, that Jesus is going to show up. And the world is not going to think any more highly of us than it thought of Jesus. The world, that is. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help you. He will be your helper. He will be your empowerer. So since we are going into this hostile world, we've got to have supernatural power for a breakthrough. And that comes through the Holy Spirit and our obedience to Him. Not doing it our own way, but following the baton of the conductor. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now get this. The Holy Spirit is who is in us. And so in us and through this body, the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will do it. Let me tell you what, you don't have to convict anybody. It's not our job to convict. It's our job to be available conduit to the Holy Spirit so that He will do the convicting. And so when that same Holy Spirit is in you, um, we step into the world under the control of the Spirit. And so His presence, the believer's presence, is going to convict. Did you ever walk in the room and everybody hushes? Or did you ever see people changing behaviors or changing language because you were there? It's not you. It's your being obedient to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is doing that. It's His job. So we don't have to convict. If we just walk in the unity of the Spirit in love, can you imagine what kind of power would be unleashed in the world? The Holy Spirit's primary role 
is to exalt Christ, is to elicit praise for Christ from his people. Now think about what Jesus said. By this shall men, the world, know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Father, let them be one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you have sent me. If we started doing the verse, can you imagine what would happen in the world? Amen.